I want you to imagine yourself in some um, precarious position, unstable position, trying to do some intricate, complicated work. Um, I, I built a tree fort in our backyard. If you've been to our house and you've seen the tree fort back there, I built that about 12 years ago probably, and I did it by myself when uh, Brooke and the kids were in Texas over summer break. And I tried to do it so I could surprise them when they got home. And I remember standing at the top of uh, a stepladder that was really too short. And it was on uneven ground. And I'm holding this heavy, uh, probably 2 by 10 over my head and trying to deal with these difficult, kind of tricky fasteners. And thinking, this is probably a pretty dumb idea to be doing this. Um, but but and, and all I could think is... I'm, I'm doing all I can to just stay on that ladder because I know that if I fall, that, that board's coming right down on top of me and, and this is not going to turn out well. But I, I think of that, I think more recently, and this is much less intricate work and, and complicated work, but just this last week, I, one of my least favorite jobs around the house is cleaning out the gutters. And we have two-story house and it's you know way up there and I'm on that thing with a backpack blower. I mean, it's been a, it's been a little while. I have like small trees that are growing in the gutters, and so I'm like I got to get this done. Uh, but I I just hate standing up there, and I feel so uneasy about it. But trying to trying to clean those gutters out. Well, you've probably been in those situations. There there was something like that that was described in of the Jews living in Russia in the early 20th century. And there's a very famous musical that's written about this period called The Fiddler on the Roof. Um, the main character, Tevia, he gives the opening monologue, and as he's giving this monologue, there's a fiddler standing at the peak of this very steep roof uh, playing his violin. And he begins, I'm not going to do this in character, so don't get excited here. A fiddler on the roof. Sounds crazy, no? But here in our little village of Anatevka, you might say every one of us is a fiddler on the roof trying to scratch out a pleasant, simple tune without breaking his neck. It isn't easy. Well, this is, this, is, this is how the Jews felt at that time in history in Russia. They're trying to balance and, and maintain their distinctiveness uh, as Jewish people, as God's chosen people, and yet at the same time not wanting to attract un undue attention, unnecessary attention, unwanted attention, stirring up, they didn't want to stir up greater opposition because there was this constant undercurrent of anti-Semitism that they dealt with regularly. And so, so it's like they're in this precarious position as this fiddler on the roof. Well, the same could be said much earlier in history about the Jews as we read them, read about them in the book of Esther here and the Persian Empire. They're standing in that culture was very precarious and unstable, like a fiddler on the roof. And I would say for us, the same could be said about us to an increasing extent as Christians living in a postmodern world. We, I think we feel this way at times, don't we? we we're exiles in a strange world. We're trying to navigate uh, living as, even as Patrick prayed in his prayer this morning, living as distinctly as kingdom citizens, and yet also being good citizens here. What does this look like? It can be difficult and precarious at times. It, life can be awkward. It can be dangerous. It can, it can be hard to keep our balance. We can be ridiculed, and we are oftentimes. We feel like fiddlers on the roof. But appearances can be deceptive. Our, our feelings, though they're real and, and, and they're significant, they, they can deceive us, or they can at least give us just a partial picture of reality. Because we're, we're actually not teetering precariously on a roof, even though that's often how it feels today. Our feet are firm. They're on a rock. There's something solid. There's something secure that's underneath us. There, we have the unseen hand of God holding us and protecting us and guiding us. That's, that's who we actually are. That's where we truly are. And, and that's what we see in the book of Esther here. In the book of Esther, and particularly as we come to chapter 2, we see how the Lord is, is caring for His people when they're, when they're very vulnerable and when they're compromised and when they're threatened by all kinds of opposition. And we, t- we can take great encouragement today that, 
Knowing that the Lord, he still cares for us, his, free, his people. He cares for us. Even when it doesn't look like it. Even when it doesn't maybe feel like it. This is true always and everywhere. This is, this is true in your life. This is true in mine. This is true in our church. This is true in the body of Christ around the world. This is true today no matter what you're facing, no matter how you feel today. This is reality. The Lord cares. The Lord is, is a rock. He's upholding us. And we're going to see that as we walk through Esther chapter 2. This is a study we began a few weeks ago. If you're joining us today for the first time, welcome and we're, we're glad to have you with us. And so we're going to jump right in though into this chapter and walk through most of this chapter and then we'll, we'll kind of bring it together at the end and, and conclude with some thoughts for application for us. So contrary to many of the the modern retellings of the story of Esther. There, I know there have been, uh, you know, movies that have been made and, and certainly children's books that have been written and Veggie Tales versions of the story of Esther. Uh, oftentimes, uh, the story is told in a way that doesn't at all reflect reality. And it is, it is, Esther, Esther 2 particularly, as we're going to see, there's nothing Cinderella-like about this story. Um, this is the, the way that it's portrayed often. It's like this beautiful romantic, uh, you know, drama, like a Disney, print, Disney princess story or something like that. Like we're seeing this beauty pageant and we have this poor, you know, church girl who, who, uh, wins the day, impresses Prince Charming with her, you know, personality and her charming smile and beautiful appearance and that kind of thing. That's not what we have at all in Esther chapter two, um, This isn't a feel-good, rags-to-riches story of this budding romance. This no Princess Diaries kind of story here. And it's certainly not the story where we would go to to give counsel to our daughters as they're beginning to date and stuff like that. This is not what we would want to look to. It's, It's actually very uncomfortable. And it's dark. And it's disturbing. It's this, it's this account that's filled with this moral ambiguity. And, and abduction and abuse, it's dark. Young girls being taken from their homes forcibly and sexually exploited. It's awful. It's disgusting. It's the kind of thing that makes our stomachs churn when we hear stories like this on the news. Like the details that emerged uh, with Jeff, Jeffrey Epstein and, and him using his power and his wealth to to exploit and to traffic young girls. It's that kind of story. It just makes us sick and angry. These are the emotions that this chapter stirs up within us. If we're understanding what we're, if we're reading it rightly, there's no escapism here. This is real fallen world stuff here in Esther chapter 2. And I will be, I will be selective in how we talk about it, but this is the reality of what's going on. And God's word, it speaks to us in these very dark and disturbing situations, even when our society doesn't know what to think about things like this. The Lord isn't ever caught flat-footed. He's not confounded. He's when, when the unthinkable, what we say the unthinkable happens. Listen, God, God has a word for those in this passage in particular, those who've been hurt, used, abused, mistreated in severe ways by other people. He knows what you've experienced. He knows what, what went on behind closed doors. He knows what may be going on right now. He knows the story that you don't dare tell people for fear of repercussions or fear of implications that might come back to you. Your Heavenly Father knows. He cares. And He has a word for you today. The prison of, of silence that often holds Victims enslaved to shame and to fear and to hopelessness. It can at least begin to be unlocked and open with passages like this in Scripture. And I hope you'll see that. Where, where dark things that are difficult to share with people, they're actually named and faced here by God, the God of wisdom and love and power. There's light that comes in through a story like this. So we're invited into this story, not simply to kind of stall out in the sorrow over the depravity of what we're seeing here, but we're invited in to trace God's invisible hand, to see His hand, to see His work despite sin and suffering 
uh, that we find here. And so his invisible hand is at work for the good of his people. That's what we're seeing in the book of Esther and we're going to see in this chapter today. Because God's gospel is a real world gospel. It is. It, it, it's one that, 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 that works in the darkest realities of our lives. And I'm not saying that cavalierly or callously. I say that like one is like many of you who, who can speak from close, from personal experience about abuse. I, this is a significant part of my own childhood. And so I still struggle with anger and shame and regret over the things that I experienced as a kid. Like many of you do, and many of you may be facing now. And so I know, I know many of you have your own stories of abuse. And that's not the extent of the application, but it's certainly one I've been thinking a lot about this week. I'm studying for this. But all of us have faced awful kinds of suffering of different kinds. And this, this is a word of hope for us today, church. And so passages like this, bleak as they are, and as difficult as they are to see, they offer unspeakable hope to me. I hope to you, to us today as a church even. And so can, can you imagine, let me just say, can you imagine the alternative to, to face the kind of awful things that we face in this world, but to say there is no God who is good and who is gracious and who is wise and powerful. There's no God who's reigning over this depraved, dark, fallen world. There is, there, he's unable to do anything about it. He's just, he's just, um, on standby, uh, helplessly watching all of this unfold. Can you imagine how hopeless that would be? Well, here we are, Esther 2. Now, if you didn't know better, if you've joined, been with us so far, it, it, if you didn't know better, you would, and maybe you've read in preparation for the, today, it might feel like you just go from Esther 1 to chapter 2, and maybe just a, a few days, maybe a few weeks have passed in that gap, but that's not the case, and so we have to pay careful attention here. The, uh, and so, the, remember, the king was enraged after his queen Vashti, his beautiful queen, refused his, to, to to come at his command to parade herself before all of these drunken men at this party. And so, then he banishes her, vows to replace her, and he maybe he cools off for a few days, and then we pick up a couple weeks later. That's kind of how it seems as we just read through the story, but that's not the case. If you remember, behind that whole 187-day feast that we saw in chapter 1 was this uh, plan of Ahasuerus to drum up support for his, his upcoming military campaigns to go against the Greeks. And so he, in, in between what's recorded in chapter 1 and chapter 2, the king goes off to war. He's gone for a few years. And so you read in chapter 1, the story begins in the third year of King Ahasuerus' reign, and then in verse 16 of chapter 2, we're told it's now the seventh year of his reign. So several years have gone by here. And so he went off to war with his massive army, and they were eventually met with this humiliating defeat at the hands of the Greeks. And so it was a very costly defeat. He, he completely drained the treasuries of the Persian Empire, or almost did. He, he was disgraced before the, his citizens. And so it's, he's just coming home like a whipped dog and just licking his wounds. And so, and his whole life basically went into a tailspin after this military defeat. Uh, Herodotus, the Greek historian that we keep referencing because that's how we know so much of this, of, of time of history. But he described the king's life after that defeat as, as, as one of constant sensual overindulgence. He talks about him just being consumed by his lust, food and, and drink and sex. And so he became the consummate kind of dirty old man after this defeat. His life just spiraled. He had relations with several of his officers, military officers, the wives of his officers, and that ultimately led to his assassination. That's, that's kind of what's going on with this guy and where we pick up the story. And so with that in mind, let's pick up in verse one. After these things, when the king, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And we, we could be tempted to read this with, like, with our little romantic uh, lenses here, but don't do that. This is a man who, everything that we see of him, he only thinks of, woman, of women simply as there to look good and to be available when he wants them. That's how he's thinking. And so he's struggling, though, in some way to get over Vashti. He realizes he made a mistake. But his dilemma is this. He, he, his decree uh, against Vashti is irrevocable. 
He can't, be, can't go back on it. So no matter what his private feelings may be for her, he can't legally restore her. So he just sits and stews. And as he does that, his advisors come to him. Verse 2. Then the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. And let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. So whatever kind of feelings of remorse he may have had as uh, for Vashti, they're quickly forgotten here as his, as his lusts are reignited with this very perverted provo- proposal by these young counselors here. And so he's very pleased with this plan and he acts on it immediately. And so basically the plan is to round up all of, all of these, uh, the, the most beautiful young women in the empire like animals basically to stock his harem. And, and, and from that group, he would choose another queen. That's the way this is recorded for us. And note, the prospective candidates had to qualify on three levels. They had to be beautiful. That's self-explanatory. They had to be young, probably uh, early to mid-teens. And they had to be virgins. And we don't know from the text how many girls were selected. Uh, one ancient historian said there were 400. We don't know the process as to how the king's men... Uh, found to determine who were the most beautiful. We don't know how forcefully the women were taken. If they, if some went somewhat willingly, and they saw it as sort of an opportunity for a better life, or if, or if they saw it as just utterly despicable and degrading as it is. I mean, this is one of the realities with with abuse, particularly sexual abuse. Many times, the victims are somewhat willing, at least at the beginning. They're either trying to get away from something or they see the promise of something better and, and yet they're, they're, they're really victims and, and, and nonetheless. And so whether their involvement in this con- contest, quote, is consensual at any degree or not, the gathering of these victims, it's a brutal act. And it's just characteristic of, of this king and, and his court. This is, this is how, they, how they acted. And let me just say, as a side note, this kind of abduction of the young females in the empire, it, it's not just limited to that gender. They're, they're, it was the normal practice of Persian kings at this time to take hundreds of young men every year and have them castrated to serve as eunuchs. And so there's wickedness going around with this king. He is, he is not discriminating against genders. And so all the boys, all the girls in the kingdom, in the empire, were seen as his possessions to do with them as he pleased. They, they were there to serve him. And so the plan is to, for these beautiful young girls to be rounded up, given beauty treatments for a full year, and then they'd be scheduled for their night with the king. That's what we're going to see. And so we're supposed to, and I hope you do, feel this utter disgust at this point. <laughs> This is tragic. The author wants us to feel the the impossibility that God might actually be working to preserve His people in the face of such sin and corruption and depravity here. Like saying, how could God possibly be working here? This is horrendous. This is so evil. So that's, that's how the scene opens here. And so then... In verse, in verse 5 here, the, the curtain, uh, it, it falls on this opening dark scene in the court of Ahasuerus. And it, and it opens on a very different scene altogether in verse 5. And, and so there's this little now Jewish family living in the citadel of Susa in entirely different circumstances. And so that's, we see this transition. And so now we're finally, you know, halfway through chapter 2, we're finally introduced into the main players of the story here. And, and it's not first Esther, but it's first her older cousin Mordecai. And so into this very dark, and as we've talked about, godless story, there's this small, very small, but hope-inducing ray of light that comes down in verse 5. And we're introduced to a man who's one of God's chosen people. And so we're not, we're not expecting this. We have to read with some surprise as we come to verse 5. So he says in verse 5, Now, in the face of that, there was 
a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jair, the son of Shimei, son of Kish, a Benjamite, Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with uh, Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. So a few things we see. One, he's a Jew. Here's a Jew. He's a member of God's covenant people. Second, he's, he's, he's a Jew that's not just living in the area around Susa, but he's actually living in the citadel of King Ahasuerus in Susa, which basically means he's connected to the palace. He's on staff there. This is, this is significant. It carries some significance. Then we're told third, he has, we're told some of his pedigree. When it says he's the, when it says son of, it doesn't mean like this is his just, you know, one generation above his father, but he's just an ancestor of. He's just showing his connection to these people. And, and so it could skip generations when you see that language. But in particular, Mordecai's associated with another Benjaminite, King Saul. Saul's father was Kish. And so Saul's dad was an ancient ancestor of Mordecai's. Now you just hold that thought because this is going to become significant later on in the story. Fourth, we realize he's an exile. Verse 5 and 6, they, they make this point very clear. I think most English translations do a pretty good job of bringing this out, but it's, it's much more forceful in the, in the Hebrew here. And so if I could just translate it very literally, it would be something like this. His ancestors had been exiled from Jerusalem with the exiles who had been exiled with Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from Nebuchadnezzar, uh, whom, whom Nebuchadnezzar exiled. So four times in just a sentence here, we get it, right? We get the message. Exiled. Mordecai and Esther, as we're going to see, were exiled. They are second or third generation exiles. Exile it defined their very existence. This is who they were. They're strangers in a strange land. They are exiled, but they're not, they're not cut off from the covenant promise. They're not cut off from the commonwealth of Israel. They're exiles. And then last, we, we find that his name is Mordecai. Mordecai is not a Jewish name. It is a Persian name. It's a pagan name. It is it, it means literally man of Marduk or even worshiper of Marduk. Marduk was one of the Babylonian uh, gods. And so it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily mean that he's actually a worshiper of Marduk, but it simply, by all appearances, he's assimilated into that culture. And so he's taken this overtly pagan name. Now, is that a good thing? Is that a bad thing? Is it neutral? We're not told. We're going to come back to that in, in a little bit. Well, there's one other thing we learn, though. Verse 7. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she had neither father nor mother. At the end of the verse, he says, when her father and her mother had died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So there's something else we're told about Mordecai. He has a younger cousin who's an orphan. This, this younger cousin has known much tragedy and loss in her very young life. And, and again, she's probably in her early to mid-teens now, so 13, 14 years old. And that suffering has brought them together. Mordecai stepped in as sort of a father figure, in a father figure role in her life as for her, as his little orphan cousin. And so he's devoted to her. He's caring for her as his own daughter. He's probably significantly older, maybe even in his 40s at this point. So finally, we're, we're introduced to Esther. And so Esther is her Persian name, probably, probably named after Ishtar, the goddess of love and war. Her Hebrew name, though, is Hadassah. Hadassah means myrtle. And so she has these two names here. And that's very deliberate that the author is showing us. She has two identities, as it were. She, and this is pointing to an issue that's going to that's gonna be brought into very sharp conflict later in the story. And so just remember that. But she, she's representing, she is representing God's people there in Persia. And she is like that fiddler on the roof. She's, she's precariously straddling these two worlds. Hadassah Esther. Hadassah, the Jewish young virgin. And Esther, this, this Persian citizen. 
Now note the details that are most relevant to the story that we're told about her in verse 7. Right in the middle of the verse, the young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at. Now, for the purpose of, the, of this story, that's what really matters is in chapter 2 here. That's not what matters most to God, but that's what matters in terms of, 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 of the story. And you, and, you, and you can't help but notice already in this chapter, but we're going to see it even more, the objectification of women in this text. It's all over the place. That's, we see this happening all over the place in our own society as well, and we have for many, many years now, that women are simply regarded by how they look. And in the story, this is what matters most to the, the pagan players in here is, is her appearance. And so that's, what, that's what's given to us. And so now the stage is set. We have the characters. And these two worlds that have been introduced, you have Ahasuerus in his palace and all of that world, and now we have Mordecai and Esther introduced. And those two worlds are about to collide. They're going to intersect. And it's like the author is saying here in, in, in these verses, keep your eyes on this family. Watch them. God... God isn't done with his people yet because the story of this young lady, Esther, is interwined with the story of God's covenant people here. Keep an eye on them. All right, verse 8. I've got to hit the gas. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Haggai, Esther, who, Esther also was taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Haggai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. So, again, here's the image. From across this vast empire, enormous empire, the largest in the world at that time, uh, in history at that time, the, the king's soldiers, they herded, these young, beautiful virgins into this, into this palace harem in Susa. And one of the king's eunuchs, Haggai, that we've already been introduced to, he's, he's put in charge of their care and of their preparations, and, and he's to get them ready to compete for the king's eye and for the crown. That's what's happening. And so in Esther, for whatever reason, she wins Haggai's favor. She, she gets some privileges that others don't, and that will become significant. But again, notice the language. Look at verse 8. She's taken. Taken. That's the passive voice here. I just, I just want you to be clear on this. This, isn't, this wasn't an open casting call for a Miss Persia pageant or something like that. Because that is how it often gets read. This isn't voluntary. These young ladies didn't apply for this or audition for this opportunity. Esther and the others, they're gathered under compulsion if necessary. They, they, she's, she's, to say she's taken is just to say she's caught up. She's swept up in circumstances that are out of her control. That's the idea. So she's, and, and this, is, this is important because she, representing the Lord's people in exile here, she's taken into Ahasuerus' harem like the Jews had been taken into exile. It was, it was, it was not voluntary. So listen, the author completely hides from our eyes Esther's motives, her thoughts, her feelings about all of this, because it's not the point. We don't know if she was cooperative or not. But either way, she's, she's at the mercy of this ruthless pagan king, and that's what, we're, that's what the author wants us to understand, just like her people were and have, have been living. And so, But her life and the lives of these other hundreds of teenage girls, they've been completely upended in this process, in this plan. Their lives were going in one direction, and suddenly now they're snatched from that to become and to be prepared to be these playthings for the king. That's, that's what's happening. Most of them would be with the king one night. If you jump down to verse 14, we'll read this in a moment. They're just going to be with him one night, then they're going to be sequestered for the rest of their lives. They will never be allowed to see friends or family. They'll be taken care of in the harem with the other concubines, and they'll just live out their days in banality of, of just a, a miserable existence kept under guard for the rest of their earthly lives. That's, what this, that's what's happening. It's atrocious. It's demoralizing. It's this degrading 
reality. And so in verse 10, we see that, that Mordecai, he instructs her to conceal her nationality. Look at verse 10 and, and their family background. So he doesn't tell us Mordecai's motives for this. Again, this is going to be a common theme. We've already seen this in chapter 1. We, we don't, we're not given motives. We're, we're not told, is this a good thing or is this not? Is this being, him being very shrewd and wise or is this wicked compromise for Mordecai? Now, based on what comes later with Haman, there is indications that Mordecai probably does suspect and is, is, already has a good sense of the anti-Semitism that's, that's there in the palace. And so, uh, but, but concealing her Jewishness, whatever the intentions, it would have certainly meant some kind of compromise. I mean, it's one thing to adopt the dress and the customs of Persia so that you can hide your Jewish identity. But what are you going to do when it's mealtime? It's time to eat. You're, you're, you, can't, you can't help but disregard the dietary laws if you're going you're gonna to hide your Jewishness. You would, there's no way. And remember, comparison, this is where Daniel drew the line. was on diet. And we hold him up as this hero because of that. Again, we're not told any details. There's no commentary about good or bad of the actions or right or wrong of motivations. But we, so let's keep reading. Verse 11. And every day, Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Again, we, ha- we have questions. I do. And they're, and when they're not answered. We, we, what, what, why did Mordecai allow Esther to be taken in the first place? Why didn't he fight? Why, why, why didn't he fight to the death if necessary to protect her? What, what, were his motives pure? Were they corrupt? Was this a wise thing to do? We, we just don't know. We don't know all we want to know, but we're told what we need to know. And, and the fact of, that these aspects are hidden from us, again, it's part of the message of Esther. This is part of the genius of this book. And, and no matter how compromised these people may or may not be, no matter the motives or the relative obedience of the people involved, God is working. That's what's, that's what's coming through. Verse 12, Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Ahasuerus, after being 12 months under the regulations for the women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months with oil of myrrh, and six months with spices and ointments for women. Just imagine that. This is crazy. When the young women went into the king in, the, in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. So, just it's hard to imagine spending an entire year preparing to get ready for this one night. That's what's happening with these hundreds of, of young girls. He spared no expense to prepare his young women for one night in his bedroom. Twelve months they're prepared, lotioned and perfumed and on and on. Hey, guys, job was, again, it was to find the most beautiful women and make them more beautiful. That was it. And again, it's not... Just see what's the way this is, of course, not just about beautifying, it's brainwashing to prepare them for this. Now, what, again, what went through Esther's heart and mind during this year? We, we don't know. Maybe she hated these circumstances with every fiber in her being. Maybe she felt that this just violated every conviction that had been instilled in her by Mordecai. Maybe she wondered how God would ever let such a terrible thing to happen to her. Maybe she saw life in the harem as tolerable. She was cared for. Maybe somewhat enjoyable. We don't know. And I would just say, isn't there something instructive in that? We have, we have with Esther sort of a mirror of our own life and our circumstances, don't we? It's complicated. It's not one-dimensional. We're all at the same time. We talk about this often. If you're a Christian, you are at once a saint, a sinner, and a sufferer. We're all always all those things at the same time. Everything we do in life, everything that happens to us in life, it, it, it has each of those realities in the mix. And so it's always dangerous to take one aspect, aspect and make that as if it's the only thing that's, that's present in this situation. I mean, I, there was one commentary, uh, just one. I, so I, most of the commentary has been very helpful in this section. And it is a very delicate and difficult chapter to, to understand and, and to get the, the sense of what the author's intended here because there's so much that's hidden from us. But one, one, 
one commentator, I think just recklessly, he's filling in all of that white space that we're acknowledging is intentional. He's filling it in by saying everything is explained by, by Esther's rebelliousness. She's just trampling on God's law carelessly, recklessly, pursuing anything she can to grab hold of power. And I just, I just don't think you can say that. There's, that's, not, that's not it. I'm not defending her at all. I think she's probably terribly compromised and morally flawed. But she's also certainly horribly victimized. That's unquestionable. And she is one of God's chosen people. That's unquestionable. And, and as the story goes on, that's where the emphasis is going to shift. So we find this this mix in the beginning and it becomes a little more emphatic on that last aspect as we go along. All right. We're going to make it, I promise. In the evening, verse 14, she would go in and in the morning she would return to the second harem. That's kind of the discard harem, to be crass, but that's essentially what it is. She would be in the these women, as they would have their night with the king, they would now go into the second harem with a different eunuch that's watching them, uh, Sheashgaz, and, and he was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, ever, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. It's tragic. Verse 15. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter to go into the king, she asked for nothing except what Haggai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tebeth, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. And she won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Now don't, again, see this through the lens of a princess movie here. Say he loved her. He loved the way she looked. He loved what happened that night. This is, this is, this is what it is. And so we, we are rightly revolted by all this. But, but we also have to see the absolute unlikelihood of what is actually taking place here. This is extraordinary. Esther, this Jew, wins the, quote, contest. She wins the prize, the prize that we're not sure we wanted her to win. This is the conflict, isn't it? She pleased the king more than all of the other virgins. Why? We're morally conflicted about that. She wins the throne on the basis of her night with the king. She has the, quote, honor of marrying this Gentile king, pagan king, in violation of God's law. And she's forced into it. And we're wondering, why? To what purpose, good purpose, could this possibly be pointing? And so it's serving. What could possibly come from this? Verse 18, we'll end here. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the province and gave gifts with royal generosity. So his happiness over finding a new queen, it spills over and, and, and causes him to be more generous to the people in his provinces. And so he, he gives them a reprieve from their normal taxes. He gives them, you know, some stimulus funds. He gives them a rebate. And, and just to express his gratitude and, and his, his delight in his new queen. And, and, and this is all in honor of Esther. So we, we, just, we just feel like he's conflicted. We're torn as we read this, aren't we? We see... We need to see all of the ugliness and the horror and the pain of all of this. And yet, despite it all, God is at work to preserve His people, to uphold His promise, to build His kingdom. How does God work in a world as dark as this one? How does He work in a world as dark as ours? 
So with that question in mind, let me just, as, as we look back over these verses here, these first 18 verses of chapter 2, just three statements, exhortations to us as we, as we see how this connects. One, don't underestimate God. Don't, you cannot underestimate God. He is present. He is working even when he seems most conspicuously, conspicuously absent. And we've seen this already and we'll continue to see this. God doesn't cause, um, but he does use very wicked people and very sinful acts as he thwarts their evil design and he bends them to his own purposes. So we see this with King Ahasuerus. We see this with his his young advisors who are giving him counsel and proposing this awful plan. We see this throughout Scripture, honestly. You can go to the New Testament. You see this with Caiaphas in John chapter 11, verse 51. Caiaphas, the high priest, he's pouring out his venom and his hatred and his vitriol towards Jesus, and he is just fuming and angry. This is at Christ's arrest and and all of this. And what does he do? He's arguing that Christ should suffer Suffer and die for the nation. Suffer for all of the people. And he has no clue. He, in that moment, is speaking prophetic words about how the Lord will redeem His people. So too, with, with, without excusing the, their wickedness at all, the advice of these king's counselors here in Esther chapter 2, it actually leads to the positioning of Esther in the only place where she could be used by God to save His people. And so this crass, repulsive, abusive contest for the queen's role that's utterly wicked to its core and, 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 and the suffering of those who, who subjected, were subjected to it, it, it cannot be minimized. And yet, this painful rise of Esther to that position in Persia meant, will mean salvation for the covenant people of God. Joseph, I mean, where you asked, we talked about Joseph last week, but were you to ask him right after his enslavement, right after uh, his imprisonment and poverty and all of the abuse he endured, were you to ask him, was that anything other than evil? I think he would say, oh, no, it was all evil. But then years later, when, he's faced, when he faces his brothers through tears, he could say, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. There's great mystery here and I I, I, I I tread confidently but carefully here the, the, the reality of evil and the freedom of sinners to sin and to sin in horrific ways and and, and yet the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God that's that's the theological question in the realm we call theodicy listen some some of us treat that, in issues of sovereignty, we treat that like it's a riddle that we're trying to solve. Like a complex puzzle. And if we could just work at it long enough, we'll crack it, we'll get it. It's not a riddle to solve. It's a mystery to behold. It's a mystery that we trust and worship the Lord as the more we comprehend, the more we draw into it. And so for anyone who suffered horribly at the hands of another person who's, and, and who's begun to rest in God's sovereignty and His goodness, this is nevertheless a very precious truth. I know many of you can testify to this. Mystery notwithstanding. We don't understand it, but it's still, it's a precious comfort. I know it's been for my own life. Over and over again. We don't often understand God's invisible hand. It may involve all sorts of forces that, 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 that seem to be, that, that don't at all seem to be good or holy in any way. It's difficult how we can see how any of this uh, with Esther could, could, could be good. How could God have any part and remain unstained? And yet we must refuse to underestimate God. We can see His invisible hand working when He seems conspicuously absent in the Esther story. And we can trust that He's always working through the complexities and the compromises and crises in our lives today. He's at work in the national, global scale and in the very personal trials that we walk through. Now let me just 
Let me give a clarification because I don't want to be misunderstood. And I realize the very personal nature of some of the things I've already talked about today. And so I'm just aware of that. This doesn't mean, from a human point of view, that it wouldn't have been better for Esther to have been snatched out of that situation. Do you understand what I'm saying? Of course it would. And I hope nobody takes from this that you should... Let's bring in an archonic. Stay in some abusive relationship um, because God might have you there for some purpose and you're waiting to see. That's not the lesson to take from this. Please understand this. If you are being abused in any way in, in some relationship, um, one, tell us. We will believe you. We will help you. You can tell the authorities. We can tell the authorities. So don't just accept it. You are an image bearer of God. He cares for you. He loves you. This is not his, his this is not the, the, the goodness of his plan for you. And so I'm, I'm it's not saying that, but what we're saying, and the point is this, is that God is able to redeem and to restore from restore us from very terrible places. And he is at work even in terrible places. And so that shouldn't make us passive or indifferent or just be run over, but it should encourage us and give us hope and help and comfort in the midst of very difficult situations. I hope that's clear. So one, don't, under, don't underestimate God and his power. Second, uh, I have to be quick, don't overestimate pagan power. God even uses his worst enemies to serve his great purposes. And so I'm going to be quick. We've, we, we looked at this in chapter 1 already. But once again, I think the author wants us to be both, one, disturbed by, and two, to laugh at King Ahasuerus here and his counselors. He, here's a man who claims ultimate power and control. He's just gotten routed by the Greeks. And he's making it very evident here that he has so little power in reality. He is a tiny little pawn in the hands of Almighty God. And, 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 he, and we sometimes get so impressed, so enamored by the powers and the pomp of all that we see, sometimes in cowering fear, and sometimes we're just, ooh, that's, that's fascinating. I, I'd like to get some of that. But, but God isn't impressed, and we shouldn't be either. God will move kings, and he will move mountains for the sake of his elect. Just little nothing. Don't underestimate God and his power. Don't overestimate the power of very proud people. And third, don't underestimate your kingdom's significance. God uses his weakest servants for his greatest work. So at the heart of the message of this chapter stands Esther herself. I mean, our eyes linger here, not on the, the lust of the emperor. That's not where, where our eyes are to be drawn. Not on the distress of the victims. Not on the opulence of the harem or anything like that. The author has our eyes, as we conclude this chapter, riveted on Esther and Mordecai. Here's Esther and Mordecai with his broken, tragic home, struggling to, to balance life as exiles in a pagan land, fiddlers on a roof. Esther is this picture of, of weakness. She's just a teenager, an orphan, a woman, a Jew. You put that combination together in that, in that world and you are outside on the very edges and margins of society. You are completely disenfranchised. And she's taken. She's abducted. She's forced into a life that she wouldn't have chosen for herself. She has no power, no influence. And who is it, though, that God uses to accomplish His purposes and advance His kingdom? It's not the mighty and the noble and the strong. It's not the Ahasuerus of the, of the day. It's not the power brokers and the culture shapers and the ones with the loudest megaphones. It's not the influential. It's not the impressive. God uses here an abused, outcast, teenage girl who's hiding her Judaism. It's the weak things. It's the things that are not, Paul would tell the Corinthians, that God used to shame the wise, to bring to nothing the things that are. Again, the divinely inspired author, he doesn't, he chooses deliberately not to reveal Esther's reaction to being taken into the harem. He doesn't reveal Mordecai's, you know, motives for com uh, uh, commanding Esther to conceal her Jewish identity. He doesn't do that. It's, it, and we, we naturally want to pass judgment on both of them. We, for positive or negative, we want to decipher good or bad. And we want, that's, that's, that's our lens through viewing this. But the, 
the deliberate silence, again, is part of the message here. Regardless of their character, regardless of their motives, regardless of their fidelity to God's law or the lack thereof, regardless of their faults or flaws or inconsistencies or weaknesses, troubles, the decisions Esther and Mordecai make, they move events in some inscrutable way to fulfill the covenant promises that God made to his people long ago. Again, it doesn't mean our our motives don't matter. It doesn't mean our decisions and our actions and our words don't mean a thing. Not at all. We must strive to be obedient to the Lord no matter what it costs, church. We, 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 should, we should seek God's wisdom and to live accordingly. But aren't you thankful that God isn't ultimately dependent on our relative obedience to bring His will to pass? I can assure you, if God was helpless apart from my track record of obedience, He would be a very frustrated God. And God is not frustrated. He will have a people for Himself and He will use even the suffering and sins of people in the process to bring that about. And so, again, we we see this encouragement not to underestimate those that God might use in His kingdom. Because, again, Esther, she, she can't be painted merely as a victim or merely as a transgressor. She's a mix when we meet her. Uh, Mike Cosper, a book author that I mentioned a few weeks ago, he said, this makes all that's to come in this story, and many of you know the story, this makes all that's to come an even deeper story of God's grace. Not only can he use the lives of people hardened by rebellion, he can also use those who are crushed by it, whose souls and consciences are tattered and seared. In this way, he says, we see Esther as someone who is three-dimensional, compromised and assimilated and in need of repentance, but also traumatized and broken and in need of healing. And so the, 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 what this provokes in us then is we're, we're not singing, you know, the, the old dare to be like Daniel. There's no dare to be like Esther song here that we come away singing after Esther chapter 2. No, we can sing songs, but we sing songs about God's, God's powerful and gracious hand to bring His people back to Himself and to preserve them and to continue, continue using them in His grand plan. That's what He's doing here. That's what He does today. And so church, I just say, are we, are we fiddlers on the roof? Not at all. We are not. It may feel like that at times. It may seem like that as we read the headlines. It may feel like that as we just interpret the events of our own week and what's happened. But our feet are on the rock of God's faithfulness and His care. God is for us. God is over us. God is around us. God is under us. God is above us. God is in us. God is with us. We simply need eyes of faith to see, to trace His invisible hand that's holding us. And then, the more we do that by faith, we can more confidently and and securely play the rest of our, our lives this melody of God's glory. No matter how precarious our lives may seem, no matter how intense the opposition against us may come. Let's pray. Father, we, we praise You for Your Word. And we come to You without, without um, minimizing in any way the, the real darkness of our world, the reality of painful trials and abuses and difficulties that many of us walk through. But we also, with gratitude, acknowledge the character of Your Word. And it speaks, it speaks into all of that mess and all of that darkness. And it calls us to live lives that more and more are shaped like the cross as we rest on Christ who was crucified and risen for us. And so give us grace, Lord, to look to Jesus, to cling to Him, that all the glory and honor might be to Him alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.